you know, there's this poem by a guy named Mark Smith called When You Get to the Top of the Mountain, Pull the Next Man Up, the Next Woman Up, the Next Child Up. I think that's a good way to have a coda for a career I've been very grateful for. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh sheets allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix a motion or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary for your next print masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Tony Fitzpatrick, artist, printmaker, podcaster, actor, boxer, tattooist, and renowned ornithophile. We talk about his growing up on the south side of Chicago and his early trouble staying in school, taking on a music festival in defense of one of the last mating pairs of piping plover in the world, making cover art for the Neville Brothers, and quite possibly, no, definitely, the best story I've ever heard about being discovered. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go to the birds with Tony Fitzpatrick. Hi, Tony. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. How are you? I don't know if you remember this, but you gave me one of the nicest compliments I've ever received, and it is one I have held close to my heart in times of trouble, which is that you said when I was leaving Davidson, you said that you hope I stay in this business because I elevate the field. And it was just like, whenever I was feeling down or trying to get the podcast off the ground or working some stupid job because I couldn't get an art job, I would think about you saying that. And it just wants you to know it meant a lot to me. No, seriously, honestly, you, you, you dignified the business. And that's, that's not a small thing. You know, I, I love working with Sam Davidson. He's always been nothing but honest and a gentleman and a really good guy. I still work with him. Yeah. And I work with his neighbor two doors down, Frederick Holmes, who is the same kind of man. You know, those guys are something of an endangered species in the art world. But yeah, they, really. they absolutely dignified the field. So... And, you know, you, you served uh, Davidson well, and you served me well. I mean, you, you put some cash in my pocket, kid, you know. That's why got, we do I what we do, yeah. I got the next day. So. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to get a chance to sit down and have a, a, a focused chat with you for the next hour or so. And well, good. I know a lot of people know you and know parts of your story, and I'm hoping we can talk about it more and talk about – the exciting things that are still going on for you. So I always invite my guests on the podcast to just introduce themselves. And I say, you know, answer the questions that are just the like, who you are, where you are, what you do kind of <laughs> questions. I'm, I'm Tony Fitzpatrick. I'm in my hometown. I'm in Chicago. I'm in technically in East Humboldt Park. I own two galleries here, one called The Dime and the other is called TF Projects. I've been showing people I thought were underappreciated for the last 30 years. And uh, we take no percentage of sales. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I have a couple of spaces that I'm able to trade my own artwork for a large percentage of the rent. And uh, I've had my final museum show because I think it's time for people who look like me to create some institutional wall space for people who don't look like me, mm-hmm. for you know, artists of color, brown artists, Asian artists, LGBTQ artists, 
uh, I, I, you know, by art world standards, I've kind of gotten mine. I'm in every museum mm. accounts, and I, I think it's it's time to just you know, gently and humbly bow out and shine a light on the talent that I see all around me that still continues to inspire me. You know, to to which end I, I embarked on curating, which I'd never done before. I figured, well, if the thing shits the bed. I can always say, well, I never done it before, you know? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are you listening to me, you know? Um, uh, we, we just, we opened the show a couple of weeks ago in New York City and Chelsea at Satchel Projects called BOP, Adventures in Contemporary Collage. And what I wanted to do was uh, pay back all of the artists whose work I've learned so much from. Some of them I barely knew. Some of them I knew really well. And it kind of planted this seed in my head that this is a show that could grow and it could continue on to other cities. And it will finally finally end up at the Metropolitan Museum of Art about three years from now. That's with so exciting. With a big doorstop catalog. And um, it's a way of uh, thanking the artists who have taught me so much. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about your last museum exhibition a little bit, the Jesus of Western Avenue and the collage exhibition as well. But before we kind of get to the now, if we look a little bit in the past, I know you said you, you grew up in Chicago. It's your hometown. Yes. Can you tell me what role art played in that part of your life growing up there? You know, it's, it honestly, it saved me. I I had a very difficult time with, with school I got expelled a great deal of times. And the one place I could go to where nobody could fool with me were my sketchbooks. When people ask me, what, what are you now? What, what is it that you do? I always tell them I'm a failed cartoonist. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up loving Dick Tracy and Mad Magazine and comics. And they were, they were kind of a vital part of the lingua franca that surrounded me that I didn't really even recognize as art until I was 17 or 18, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was always this thing in our culture about high art and low art. And I thought that was, I've come to think that that was unfortunate because it's all art. Um, I mean, Robert Crumb and Chester Gould are, you know, Swimming in the same side of the pool, you know. I mean, one guy, mm-hmm. right-wing reactionary nut, Mr. Gould, who I met when I was a kid, when I was a little boy. Oh, my gosh. And Robert Crumb has uh, kind of kicked open the door for comics and, and showed us was what was possible. We could uh, we could make images and, and narratives about the transgressive without uh, – mm-hmm. and hold our head up at the same time we were making art, you know. So – those guys were both kind of vitally important. Plus all the guys from Mad Magazine, you know, Sam Jaffe, Sergio Argonis, Don Martin. I mean, all of the great geniuses from Mad Magazine. Um, they, I found that magazine when I was 11 years old and I, I started reading it. And I said, fuck, man, they're getting away with it. You know, it's like, <laughs> these guys are professional wise asses and they get paid for it. Yeah. And uh, that became kind of my hammer and nails against the world, you know? So the comics and, you know, on every once in a while on a Tuesday, my mother would bring me down to the Art Institute of Chicago uh, for free day. You know, you mm-hmm. could go for nothing on Tuesday. And I remember the first time I stood in front of the inventions of Monster, Monsters by Salvador Dali, and then uh, Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. Mm. And the same thing happened both times, the hair on my arms and the back of my neck stood up. It's like, I didn't know what exactly those things meant. I just knew they had something to do with me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my mother, I'm one of eight children, and my mother indulged me more than the rest of the kids. She, you know, would take me to the art supply store when I was 22 years old and on the balls of my ass, barely could hold a job. And she would buy me my art supplies, you know, yeah. and um, you know, five years later, I had my first one-man show in New York, and it hit. I got a big mm-hmm. review, and the show sold out. And all of a sudden, I went from being a hundred and ten dollar a week bartender plus tips <laughs> to contemporary artist. 
And it was a little bit of a culture shock. Yeah, I, I'd gone to New York. I, I, I didn't know anybody. I, I, you know, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know, I didn't know how to enter that world. You know, I, I went to Washington Square. I used to make these drawings on slate boards because I, I thought right before I got really serious about making art, I had a substantial drug problem. And, uh, and after I got clean, I thought, you know, every time I sit down and draw, at least let me learn something. And the blackboards implied, you know, the learning process for me. And they hit a nerve, you know. I'm, the only reason I got a show is I'm sitting in Washington Square. I had followed this girl to New York. And uh, the day I got there, she dear John's my ass, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't exactly heartbroken. I liked her a lot, but, you know. I was in New York and I just tried to figure out, well, you know, how can I, my ticket isn't home for like five days. So how can I make the most of this and make my $200 last, you know? Mm-hmm. So I went to Washington Square. This guy I knew, Bobby Letterman, um, was headed there. He used to put his paintings out there. He's one of those spray paint guys, you know? So he goes, hey, go down to the square. He goes, you won't get top dollar. He goes, but you get some money, you know? So I put three or four of my slates out, and about an hour later, I was working on another one, and this guy bops up. He's got a crew cut and kind of the cool glasses, and I can tell he's like hip. I'm, I'm, I look like a rube. I look like a bike. You know? <laughs> and he's looking at the slate drawings, and he goes, what are you getting for those? And Miranda, till that time, I, I never really even thought about it. Mm-hmm. So I decided to swing for the fence. I go, uh, 50 bucks. And he goes, okay, I want those three. And I'm wrapping them up for him with this new invention in the mid-80s called bubble wrap. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, he says to me, he goes, are you going to be here tomorrow? I said, yeah, you coming back? He goes, yeah, I'm bringing a friend of mine. So I've got 150 more dollars. It's like I'm going to be able to eat someplace that has silverware that night, you know? And I felt really good about it. I was back the next day and, you know, I set up a few more of my slate drawings. I had like 12 with me, you know? And uh, sure enough, man, this guy comes back and he comes bopping up with the coolest guy I've ever seen in my life. He's Black guy, he's got short braids, he's smoking a joint. He just pops <laughs> all over Washington Square. It's, it's, it's like he's smoking a joint, like, you can't see me, you know? Yeah. And uh, he goes, uh, what are you getting for those? And I'm like, 50 bucks. And he goes, I want those two, you know? So I wrap them up, and they're, they're standing a few feet away, kind of talking and stuff. And as I hand them to him, they go, you know, there's an easier way to do this. And I'm like, you know, do tell, you know. And yeah. <laughs> said, you got a half an hour? And I'm like, I got nothing but time, man. You know, it's like, and they walked me down 7th Street to Avenue B. Now, it's only about a 10-minute walk, but every five feet, people are walking up, hugging these guys, kiss, kiss, you know. And it dawned on me, it's like, I don't know who the fuck these guys are, but they're somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. So... We walk into this gallery that I had walked into two days before. The woman never even looked up from her vanity fair. She was like, we look at slides on Monday. You can pick them up on Tuesday. But when she sees who I'm with at the door, she practically kills herself getting out from behind the desk, right? And she walks up, kiss, 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 kiss. We have to get lunch, you know, la, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And Finally, the one guy goes, you got to see this guy's drawings. We just bought a bunch. And I laid them all out on her desk. And she goes, these are exquisite. Thank you. <laughs> she looks at me really carefully. She goes, have we met? I said, no, uh-huh. I get that a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she gave me a show for six months later. Wow. The two guys were Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Herring. Holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. And you know what? I, I never was able to repay those kindnesses. So yeah. that went very far in me deciding to open galleries that showed 
artists who should be better known. Yeah. So yeah, I had a show six months later. It sold out. I got a big review, and um, all of a sudden, I did nothing else but this for the last uh, thirty-five years. And so, at that point, were you then kind of moved residence to New York? Because I know some at some point, Big Cat Press comes into this, right? Yeah, big, my, my partner Dan Ferrara opened a, a Big Cat Press gallery and on the Lower East Side on the yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we we would have hung in there if not for, you know, 9-11, you know, I mean. Really? Yeah, it just, all of a sudden, that part of town turned into a ghost town for a better part of a year and a half. He moved it again mm. to, you know, over on First Avenue. And, you know, we just could not make the breakwater, you know, and not for want of trying. I mean, Dan was smart, organized, and more moreover than that, a careful judicious guy about business he knew he knew his way around it yeah but, uh, you know i mean that point in american history this is 2000 2000 then 2001 2001 like the pandemic just kind of sh- shot a hole in the bottom of everyone's boat you know it's like mm-hmm. 2001 i didn't even concentrate on selling my work after 9-11 i did benefits i did i did etchings on behalf of the lower east side arts council you know i I was busy kind of raising money for other people and and wound up taking a few artists and residencies one in missoula montana which gave me one of the best bodies of etchings i ever made the autumn etching you know one night i came home after dinner and the lady at the desk says, you know, there's going to be a meteor shower tomorrow at 4.10 in the morning. Would you like a wake-up call? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Aww. And out there, there are no, there are no, you know, there's not the proliferation of streetlights or any of that. I went out. I, you know, I had a blanket wrapped around me. I lit up a cigarette and had a cup of coffee. And I watched a meteor shower. But without all of the distraction of the lights you have in the city. And it was like watching the sky have this celestial pinball machine. You know, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was astonishing. And it, it 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 was one of the things that kind of brought me back to nature as a subject. You know, it brought mm. me back to uh, one of the things I did in Missoula is saw a lot of birds, you know. Uh, yeah. I know yeah. birds are a, are a theme for you and, and you've constantly been present in, in meaningful ways. And, you know, I'm someone who's just absolutely animal obsessed and and I completely identify with that. I feel like my higher power was getting to see wolves in the wild at Yellowstone once. It was like I was like, that's it. I'm yeah. looking at God. And I kinda hold with that. I'm 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 an atheist, you know. I believe what Crazy Horse believed. I believed in uh the great mystery and that if there's something up there guiding the whole thing, I'm not meant to understand it. And hmm. I'll figure it out when I get there. You know, I, I don't ever hold people's faith against them. You know, people of faith, it's like, you know, have at it. If it, it does for you what it's supposed to do, which makes you more compassionate, more decent, yeah, more grateful for being alive, you know, I'm all for you. You know, I, I just, I don't share what you believe. That's it, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the birds, the birds are real important. I mean, they have been since I was a little tiny kid, you know. My grandmother came to stay with us after my father had had a heart attack. And every morning she would toast a couple pieces of bread, spread jam on them, chop them all up, and throw them out the back door for the birds. And I'm one of eight children. We never wasted food, you know. So mm-hmm. I said to my grandmother, I said, why are you giving all our bread to the birds? You know, I'm like five years old and a little shit, you know. <laughs> and she goes like this, and she goes, Give your ears a chance. She opens the window and I heard it, you know. You know, sparrows, blackbirds, morning doves, uh, finches, bluebirds, you know. I mean, this operatic cacophony of sounds. She goes, for a piece of bread, you can hear God sing. Oh, I just got goosebumps. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. That one pretty much destroys me every time I think of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. So, you know, when, whenever I needed to get out of the shit house with my mother, I'd draw her a cardinal. <laughs> you know, when I get bounced from the school, 
you know, and uh, she would stick up for me with my father. She would say, you know, they were after him. They, you know, they pestered him. They wanted to take his sketchbook away. And, and you know, he told them to fuck off, you know. <laughs> um, so I'd be in trouble. The old man would be pissed. But I would make my mother a cardinal. Mm. And I wasn't grounded anymore, you know. I, I figured out that keeping me in school was just a way of keeping me off the street, you know. And mm -hmm. I, when I got kicked out of school, I would go to work with my father. My father was in the funeral business, sold burial walls. Oh, so he really? called on funeral homes. Now, if you went to work with my father, at lunchtime, he got to eat in a restaurant, you know, which was a treat. My mother could explain any line of Irish poetry to you. Any great writer. My mother wrote beautiful poetry before her and my father got married. But like most Irish women, she was not a cook, you know. <laughs> so so lunch was like a big deal, you know. And uh, you know, you know, my dad would take me to a joint called Clarksville, which was a you know, damn near a gourmet hot dog place before there were gourmet hot dog places. Phil Schmitz in Indiana and. Uh, we get, you know, lake perch, you know, fried lake perch. You know, I mean, it was, and he'd be pissed at me the first day, you know, you know kicked out of another goddamn school. You know, <laughs> the first half a day. And then the second half, his need as a storyteller would assert itself. And mm -hmm. pretty soon, you know, four or five days later, we were having the time of our life, you know. They had a hard time getting me into other schools because word had traveled, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, re I remember one school, the school they finally graduated from, half of seventh and, and eighth grade. We're walking up to the school, and the nun is standing out there. She's about four foot eleven, and she's like nodding her head as we're walking up. And it's like I wanted to say to my father, "She looks pissed off. What's what's going on?" You know. And she goes like this when I got there. She goes. I know all about you. <laughs> I've heard. I've heard all the stories, buddy. Let me tell you something, Buster. We're not going to expel you. We're not kicking this can down the road. We're going to fix your wagon. And I almost said, oh, yeah, bitch. You know, and yeah. my father beat the shit out of me, so I didn't. So he, he's gripping my shoulder, and he goes, sister, Anthony has agreed to pursue his studies with renewed vigor. When he said that, I almost started laughing. I had, I had to bite into my cheeks to keep from laughing. And she goes, I hope so. And she goes, I'm keeping an eye on you, you know. And sure enough, man, she followed me around all the time. And my, like, third day there, this douchebag walked up and, like, shoved me. And he goes, yeah, we hear you think you're real rough and my la and maybe meet me by the basketball court after school if you got the stones. Say, so I'll be there, you know. At first mm -hmm. I said, well, why wait? We'll just do it here, <laughs> you know. So I went out and I kicked the shit out of Jack, who later became a friend. So I'm not going to say his last name. And then his friend Mike got into it, an Irish kid, you know, and I pounded his ass too. And then this big kid, Mike Cleggis, got into it and pounded my ass. Mm. And Two days later, we were like all the best of friends, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. one day I'm, I'm sitting in a lunchroom and I'm drawing a blue jay. And it's I'm having a really good day. It really looks beautiful. And the nun, Sister Regina, walks behind me and she goes, Ah, looks like you have a little bit of talent for something else besides raising hell. <laughs> and I said, Yeah. She goes, Yeah, blue jays are my favorite bird. They're pugnacious like I am. So I waited till the next day. I waited till she was out of her office. I, I carefully took it out of my tablet and I just put it on her desk. So later that day at lunch, she walks, she's walking behind me. She goes, thank you. She goes, that's a lovely picture. I'm going to get it framed. And I said, well, you know, I know a frame shop. I can get you a deal. She goes, oh, Maybe they'll donate it. I said, sister, things aren't that good, you know. <laughs> but the guy did donate it, you know. The guy was a friend of my father's. Oh, he had a nice. friend shop in, in town. And and that woman never gave me any shit after that. In fact, she yeah. was really supportive of me. 
fact, about a week afterwards, she walks up to me and she goes, yeah, I heard you handed Jack Kasner and Mike Duffy their ass after school last week. I said, I said, sister, they, they started it. She goes, yeah, I heard that. I heard that. Or else you'd be doing detention. I said, I understand. I'm not, I'm not, just try to avoid kicking the shit out of all your classmates. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out she was from the same part of the world I was, you know, she's from mm. the south side of Chicago and. And she knew some of my mom's friends, which helped, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I knew them. I used to run around with them. We all worked at Finnegan's Drugstore, you know? So so I kind of, you know, I was kind of able to, in a stealth way, get away with murder, you know? Mm -hmm. Cover my tracks a little more. When I talk about people of faith, I would never want to disparage what Sister Regina believed, you know? It's not what I believe, but... um, I'm not one of these professional atheists who goes around trashing people for their faith. I think it's ungenerous. I think it's unkind. Mm-hmm. And, and it's ungracious. And unhelpful. No, you not know? at all. Yeah, it doesn't not, do anything. not bolster my argument any, you know. You know, I'm, I'm past my final museum show, and it was 94 pieces. It was, you know, three years ago when we first started talking about it. It was supposed to be a much more humble affair. It was supposed to be, you know, 40, 45 pieces. I mean, even that is a big show, you know. Mm-hmm. Then COVID and the pandemic hit, and I'm sitting out in Humboldt Park, and uh, I realized I no longer have an income. Mm-hmm. They closed my galleries. They closed my studio. And they decided to form a jigsaw puzzle company. My yeah. wife and my friend Kevin were on me for years about it. Like, look, these would make really difficult jigsaw puzzles. And thankfully, they, they are. You know? Yeah. I have so, to say one of the highlights for the pandemic for me that I looked forward to was seeing photos of you on Facebook with a mask on and your puzzle – on the on yeah on the pizza the Whitburn pizza thing, handing your puzzle to someone who had gotten one, it was just it was just such a highlight when like everything was shitty shitty news. Like to see Tony delivering a puzzle, I loved it. You know, you got to find a way to find the joy. Sometimes you you must seek it out. You know, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it immensely. Now, take my word for it that I have never finished a jigsaw puzzle. In my, life. <laughs> my brain just isn't wired that way. You know, but, uh, you know, we found ancillary good things to use them for. We found out that people who are experiencing onset dementia, that jigsaw puzzles give them an attainable task. Mm, I can see that. They can conquer and it fires up the cognitive recognition pulses or impulses. So we were able to do some good. I also found out... uh, the kids who were terminally ill at Lurie's Children's Hospital in Chicago loved them, you know. So I went and dropped off 30 of them. And, uh, you know, if you can take uh, a very ill child's mind off their illness for even an hour or two, mm-hmm. I think there's some grace in that, you know. So, yeah. And the birds are featured in uh, the puzzles, yeah? Yeah. 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 I've gone way down the rabbit hole with the bird nerd shit. <laughs> Later on tonight, I'll be on a Zoom call with all my bird nerd friends. And oh. believe me, my wife, her eyes roll back in her head. Say, oh, shit, here we go. Wait, wait, is this like the, the Chicago Audubon Society? Who is, who's the bird no, nerd? this is uh, <laughs> the Chicago uh, Ornithological Society. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's become, you know, I've become an activist on, on behalf of Habitat and yep. particularly avian species mm-hmm. birds you know we're trying to enact laws that buildings should put window treatments that don't promote collisions for migrating birds mm-hmm. um, yeah when i was in australia there is so much talk about the incredible birds that are down there yeah and how cats domesticated cats which oh, of course yeah. aren't native to australia are just devastating those populations of cockatoos and parakeets and galahs. I'm not a fan of cats. I'm really not, you know. Aside from big cat press, not, yeah. (laughs) 
Big Cat Press was named for a boxer named Cleveland Big Cat Williams. Uh, gotcha. There's an argument to be made that all cats should be house cats. You know, if you learn mm-hmm. Roman stuff, they get into it. They don't just kill birds. They kill all kinds of other animals. You know, I mean, you know, baby rabbits. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah. I'm not crazy about them. You know, something that I was thinking about with your work and kind of talking about the pandemic is like the sanctity of nature in urban spaces. I think about that a lot with your work as someone I associate so much with Chicago, but also with the animals that come visit us in our urban spaces and how, I mean, it must've saved people to be in lockdown, but just to like have a walk in the park. I live four blocks east of Humboldt park. And I would walk out there every morning and just maintain my sanity. You know, I mean, I would sit with these big rocks right by the lagoon. I'd sit on them and I would hear the wind blow through the trees. The musics of morning songbirds, the ducks and the geese, the sound of the water. Mm -hmm. And I was able to center myself. Because I'm in therapy for depression, you know, and... During the pandemic, it, 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 kind of, it kind of became more pronounced. And mm-hmm. uh, what I wanted to do was just head off anything really dark. You know? So I bought a bunch of feeders from my backyard, a big bird bong, and I get every kind of bird in my backyard. Mm. Uh, I spend $400 a month on bird seed. <laughs> I have to go all the way out to Naperville, which is like, 40 miles west of Chicago. We have to load 50-pound sacks of uh, wild bird feed, cracked corn, safflower, millet, and then these little millet cakes for the woodpeckers, you know. And then for when, during migration, when the Orioles and the tanagers come through, you take an orange and you nail it to the back porch, spread a bunch of jelly on. Welch's grape jelly is what they like. And the Orioles show up, you know, the food. The fruit birds, you know. So, yeah, I'm. I've gone way down the rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah, Tony's bird sanctuary. It sounds like kind of, kind yeah. of. You know, I mean, you know, in everyone in my neighborhood has feeders. You know, I mean, it's like we once in a while we take turns looking at each other's each other's feeders. It's it's lovely. Yeah, that's so important, and we're so lucky that we haven't destroyed it all yet. You know, I, th- I think about yeah, I'm that. Trying real hard not to let them, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I became activist three years ago. They wanted to put a music festival on Montrose point where the last, there are only 65 mating pairs of piping plovers left in the world. And there was a pair mating there, Monty and Rose. And, mm. This guy wanted to put an EDM music festival there. And I said, well, we're not going to let you do that. It's a bird sanctuary. Well, the alderman says, you know. So I called the alderman. I used to write for a newspaper. And I said, Mr. Kappelman, I said, I'm going to press with this before 5 o'clock. Why will you not enforce the protections inherent in the word sanctuary? Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's not really what we're doing. I said, bullshit. I said, it's exactly what you're doing. How much did they give you? And he hung up. And then I called the promoter back. Keep in mind, the promoter was like one of my bigger collectors at the time. Mm. I said, look, Jerry, you either find a new location or I'm coming after you publicly on social media, in my column. Well, you know, well, you know we're moving, you know, you know, three, 300 meters north of where I said, that's not enough. I said, look, I'm not worried about the sound. You think it's a sound thing. It's, I'm worried about the human traffic. Yeah. You know, and these plovers, they nest on the ground. Oh, and okay. And your drunken, ecstasy-taking douchebags <laughs> are going to be stomping all over the beach. I said, now look, you, you, either, you either back off. There are 27 miles of beachfront in Chicago. Find another beach. And he dug his heels in. So I did two things. I 
on social media every day, I held up a sign saying, Jerry, do the right thing. Move hmm. and be on the beach. And I did this constantly. And then I talked to two biker clubs and I said, guys, if he doesn't back off, I would really like it if we made a human chain mm. surrounding the nesting area. And both clubs, the Booze Fighters and Half Fast, agreed. Oh and they're like, hey, Tony, he goes, any of the emo crowd comes near, we'll stomp them into the fucking ground. <laughs> you don't have to do that much. I said, but make sure they know it's definitely a possibility, you know? <laughs> So that's such an amazing then, image, uh, this chain of bikers protecting these birds. Yeah, it's so yeah. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done, I've done patches for both of those clubs, you know? Yeah. And uh, so then a tribe called quest is a headliner and my friend knows their tour manager. He's a birder. He's one of the most well-known black birders in America. And he tells them the story, you know, and he sits the guys from tribe down and he says, hey, you know, we may carry firearms, we may, we may deal some herb, we may, you know, but we have no truck with extinction. Mm. Dog, we don't pull out of this, we're buying ourselves $5 million worth of bad publicity. And they pulled out. And that sunk the whole thing. And Mamby withdrew, and the promoter, who hates me to this day, <laughs> I thanked him publicly on, on, on social media. I said, Jerry, thank you. The environment thanks you. And a pair of mating piping plovers thanks you. You did the right thing. Mm. It isn't all about money. And he kept telling this guy who worked for him, who I gave a show to, a marvelous photographer named John Suss. You know, what Tony did to me was actionable. And John finally said, hey, you know what, Jerry? You're full of shit. If it was actionable, you'd have had him in court. Yeah. And secondly, Jerry, you were wrong. You mm -hmm. were pure fucking wrong, you know? So then John has a show like four months later in my gallery. Jerry shows up. He walks over, he shakes hand, and I said, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here for John. He goes, yeah, I am too. I'm, I'm here for John. I said, I understand. Uh -huh. Yeah. And we never spoke again. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's funny because I, I know that, I mean, you love music. You've done album covers. You talk about the way your work, yeah. you compare it to jazz. You know, I mean, it wasn't about that you're not for people listening and having access to music. I associate you very much with, with that side of yeah, the world as well. Had yeah. you that to another beach, I'd have gone to that festival. You know, I mean, I've done 20 album covers for Steve Earle. I did one for the Neville Brothers, one for Lou Reed. I've done a ton of jazz covers. Mm -hmm. uh, most notably for Frank Catalano, who I think is probably the greatest saxophone player on the planet right now. The greatest mm -hmm. living. And I always do it for nothing just because, you know, they don't pay jazz guys anything. Yeah. And every time I ask him to play an event for me or something, he can't wait to do it. You know, I don't have any musical talent. So the only way guys like me who look like this get to be in the music business is you got to be able to do something, you know, <laughs> or do album covers. And I've enjoyed it. I, I yeah. it's been, you know, with Steve Earle, it's been, I've, I've been able to witness the making of an astonishing American songbook. He is every bit as important to my generation as what he Guthrie's was to my father and my grandfather. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty blessed. I've, I've been very fortunate. How does that the process work when making an album cover? Do you get to listen to the album well, first yeah, and get inspired? Back when, back when there still was a recording industry. Right. <laughs> the first one I did was for the soundtrack of a film called Something Wild. It was made by my friend Jonathan Demi, who was one of my biggest collectors. And then about a year and a half later, I got a phone call from an A&M executive named Jeff Gold. And he said, Aaron Neville was in my office and he saw your book. Would you like to make an album cover for the Neville Brothers? Mm. I said, yeah, I would. He said, well, this weekend you're flying to New Orleans. Oh my gosh. To meet with the brothers. And we think the name of the record is Yellow Moon. Uh, so I went down and I, I met with Aaron and, and, and 
Cyril and Arthur and Charlie. And I became quite close to Charlie for a long time, this saxophone player. And, you know, they took me around their New Orleans. They took me around their history. They gave me a book called Up From the Cradle, which describes how all of the musics that preceded them became present and alive in their music. And mm. I got it. I, and I, I, I always wondered why the Nevilles were never a huge hit on, on radio. And it's like, I know why. I worked in radio for 10 years. Nobody knew where to put them. The black stations didn't know where to put them. They thought, well, this is more like jazz or blues. The white album-oriented recordings didn't know what to do with them. Because it's like, well, it's like this belongs on the black stations. Luckily, we had a station here in Chicago called WXRT, bless them. And they were big fans of the Nevils, and they played the hell out of Yellow Moon. And the record, the cover won a Diamond Award for album covers, which uh, they don't give you any money. They just send you this fucking you know. <laughs> but it was like a feather in my cap, and, you know, I, I've started doing other album covers. I've done a lot of them for bands who, you know, nobody's ever heard of, you know. I mean, the, the one I'm happiest about now, I just did it, for an American singer-songwriter named Joe Pug. His, his real name is Puglisi, you know. He's, he's from Maryland. And he, he wrote a record, the title track was called The Nation of Heat. Hmm. And I love the song so much, I asked him if I could title one of my Steppenwolf shows, Nickel History of the Nation of Heat. And he performed that live for that show, just to be a good guy, you know, and he hmm. became my dear friend. And they re-recorded the record because when he first recorded it, it was just him and a guitar. Yeah. This time the band breathe new life into those songs. And it, it just came out again. If you get a chance, get it, you know? Yeah. If you don't like it, I'll reimburse you. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's so good. So, I mean, I'm, I'm able to, uh, you know, support the musicians that I'm really fond of, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and who knows why anyone hits it anymore? It's like there's no recording industry. A good deal of it is dependent on social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, kind of who has the biggest... Uh, biggest blast horn you know is the the most uh, consensus so by doing the covers i try to create an element of consensus for the artists that i admire i want to make sure we get a chance to talk about this collage exhibition and maybe a little bit more in detail about it i know you've been working on it for a few years but what was the impetus to get it started, what made you think, all right, it's time to, to start gathering these collage artists? I, I did my final museum show, and it was, you know, my work's always been a combination of drawing and collage. And what I learned from looking at the collages that I most admire, and I, I got a great deal of them into the show Owen Spryzak, Danny Torres, Paloma Treca, Clarice Casalino, Joshua Grotto. Mandy Cano Villalobos, Lisa Barsi, Swoon, Lou Beach, Paul Lockney, Ray Borchers, Mary O'Brien Spurrier, Carter Spurrier, and Charles Spurrier. They were, they're kind of my go-tos because they evince a kind of fearlessness. And the one thing I was interested in is emphasizing the idea that, you know, when you start making this kind of art, when you start adding assemblage and, and collage to your work, all of a sudden there's a spirit of improvisation. There's some bop, you know, mm. and you keep inventing. You keep, it's like juggling with one ball. You got to keep finding a way to entertain yourself. And that's kind of what I loved about this whole thing. And I chose the artist that I thought most deftly embodied that ethos. And I'm choosing another 15. The next iteration will have at least 30 artists. Then the one after that will have 45. And when we land at the Met, it'll be 60 contemporary mm. collages. I, I could not be more proud of all of them and I'd not be more indebted to all of them. I learned a great deal from looking at their work. And uh, this, uh, I look at this as a final chapter in my career in that I can shine a light other people. Mm-hmm. I've gotten mine. I've been treated well. I've been, I'm not rich. I probably never will be, but I've been, you know, materially rewarded for my work and my career. And 
it's time to spread some of that around. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And something that I wish more people would think about. I think there's so much of an attitude of it's never enough and it's just me. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like the American way, right? Like, <laughs> I, you notice more of that with, with Trumpism. And I want to fly in the face of that. I mean, hey, look, we're up to me, Bernie Sanders, to be president. I'm a democratic socialist. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. but. For a socialist, I make an embarrassing amount of money for my work. But I, I do like the idea of, you know, there's this poem by a guy named Mark Smith called When You Get to the Top of the Mountain, Pull the Next Man Up, the Next Woman Up, the Next Child Up. I think that's a good way to have a coda for a career I've been very grateful for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your final exhibition, The Jesus of Western Avenue. Yeah. Was that a, a retrospective? Was that all new nah. works? That was, most, of that, most of that work was from the last three years. All but 12 pieces were from the last three years. I don't like the R word. You know, my, my friend Ed Paschke had one when he was 53. Ooh. And I walked up to him that night at the Art Institute, and I said, hey, brother, I said, it's good to be king. And he looked at me, and he was not didn't look terribly happy. And he said, he said kid, you know what this is, right? I said, no. He said, this is where they pull the shroud over your head and decide that you have nothing else to say. Yeah. And I I went to school on that. I, I've had a few museums put, pitch me a retrospective. No, not going to have one. Nor do I think it's necessary. I, I still got a lot more to do. I still got a lot more to a lot more growth to have, a lot more. You know, there's always another peak. You know what I mean? There's always mm-hmm. another hill to get up. So... I just, uh, I think they're overrated, you know, retrospectives. I think yeah. it's something that more services the marketplace than it does the artist. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I, nah, I mean, I walked away from the institutional art world individually at the perfect time, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to participate in a huge group show at the Met in three years with all the artists that I so admire. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Helen Pashkin, who was this wonderful light artist who was really active in, yeah, in yeah. California. Yeah, she yeah, had a, a great show at Sight Santa Fe, and she's in her 80s, and she called it her mid-career retrospective. <laughs> that's, that's the <laughs> right attitude you to have. To her, you, you, we, if you talk to her, you tell her that I'm a huge admirer. I will. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. She does yeah, really beautiful work. You know, you know the, the great Susan Rothenberg lived in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And I've I've so admired her paintings. I mean, plus you you got the you know the Black Rock guys out there, formerly Landfall Press. You mm-hmm. know Steve Campbell, who taught me how to make etchings. You know, I mean, that's another guy I owe a debt that I cannot repay. Yeah. Um, well, you you need to come come visit us, and I we'll will. get you and Steve on tape together. Oh, boy. <laughs> Who knows where the bodies are buried? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what else nobody knows about him is he's a, he's, he's a phenomenal collagist. Yeah. I, so I've, I could have seen that from his prints. Tell him that I'd like to put him in uh, All right. You know, he made gorgeous collages. He made, uh, he, made, he made a show that was called Storming Heaven years ago, 2004, 2003 or 2004. And it was exquisite. It was just otherworldly great. He's just one of the, he's also one of the best men I've ever known. Uh, he's so good. Yeah. Just a, a, a kind man. And uh, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. changed my career for the better. Was that where you were really first introduced to etching was in Landfall? Yeah. I actually made 12 etchings with a girl I was engaged to mm. in Scarsdale, New York. And, uh, and we split up, but etching really got my attention uh, because it, it rewarded the way that I drew, you know, right. I tend to draw slowly and, and, and deliberately and it really shores up your draftsmanship because there's no room for mistakes, you know, and if you make a mistake, you got to turn the lemon into lemonade, you know, and, uh, you know, Steve was the one who introduced it to me as a series of opportunities rather than a series of obstacles. 
Hmm. He showed me spit biting. He showed me aquatense. He, 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 and he was endlessly patient with me. I'm, I'm not a patient man myself. I'm really <laughs> not. And Steve was like endlessly, he was like, he's kind of like Yoda, but he's slightly better looking, you know? <laughs> he just, there's just this font of wisdom from, you know, 45 years of printmaking, you know? Yeah. He's endlessly patient and endlessly kind. I can't say enough good things about him. Yeah. It's been really, he and Chris have both been the most welcoming people Absolutely. to me and my husband. You know, I mean, it's just, when you show up somewhere new and you don't know anyone, but you've got people who are always showing you kindness, looks like they're happy to see you. That means a lot. There's always that dog whistle thing where we all recognize each other. It's like, mm. yeah, okay. <laughs> it was, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Tony, it's been so nice to chat and to hear your stories. And I, I really, really appreciate you letting me borrow some of your time. I know you're a busy guy. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm also happy that there's a podcast that's centered in printmaking. Good for you. I'm going to send you some names of people you should talk to. I will definitely, definitely be glad to get those. So right, thanks great. so much, Tony. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep some materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast listening app of choice, or get something from one of our great sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent ya. But as always, the best thing you can do is listen and maybe tell a fellow print friend. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Miguel A. Aragon. We talk about his ambitious and process-driven practice taking images straight from the headlines and deconstructing them with burnt embossment and power tools. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.